0: listening to sermons from South Point Locust Grove, where we are equipping the family of God for the mission of God, to see everyone around us transformed by the gospel of Jesus. For more information, please visit southpoint.org. And if you'd open to Luke chapter 1, we're going to begin in verse number 57 this morning. Um, While you're turning, let me just ask you to mark a date on your calendar, October the 3rd. Um, That's Sunday night. We normally meet on Sunday morning, but that's Sunday night. uh, We're having a missions night, and it'll start at 6 o'clock and go to 730. It'll be in McDonough at our McDonough facility there. And I hope all of you will make plans to be there. It's going to be a great time in the life of our church. We'll be able to see what God's doing uh, just in a, uh, th- through missions at South Point. We'll be able to hear from our, our missionaries, the folks that we have the privilege of supporting and, and partnering with. So uh, let me encourage you to just mark that data on your calendar. I hope you'll uh, recognize this is the first time that we've done something like this in 15 years. And it's something that you absolutely will not want to miss. You'll want to bring your kids to and expose them to. So um, it's going to be a great night uh, in the life of our body. Uh, for those of you that are here this morning, you know that life is uh, is messy. It's filled with complexities and challenges and surprises. We uh, are living through, uh, you know, 9/11, and we've had a lot of conversation about that. Everybody that was alive then remembers where they were and what they were doing, and we've seen uh, a lot of things happen since then, even the withdrawal of the troops from. Um, Afghanistan and all of the complexities and problems with that and then the past two years that we've gone through with uh, the shock of COVID and all of the implications and all of the fears and all of the divisions whether to get vaccinated or not vaccinated or or just whatever we are supposed to do, and then we reduce that down to the stresses of marriage or the breakup of marriage or just life stress. Everybody faces stress at, a, at a, just a, a high magnitude. We don't know what's going to be happening financially, although the stock market looks great and the housing market looks great. This thing's got to bust at some point. Inflation is uh, going crazy. The future as, is uncertain, and as we consider Luke's gospel, and, and the people that God was visiting and using and sending Gabriel to uh, to com- communicate with, um, their lives were no different than our lives with a lot of issues, a lot of complexities, a lot of stressors, a lot of challenges. Life for us is messy and life for them was messy. And one thing we've got to come to grips with as we look at the text this morning is this, that... that God's will and presence don't necessarily make life any less complex or any easier or any less messy. We're going to look at the text and wonder what is God trying to tell us and we're going to see people that He has intersected with and that He's used to bring good news to us and those people's lives were literally wrecked by their intersection with God and God using them. You're not going to hear that anywhere else. This is not the prosperity gospel. Intersecting with God can wreck your life. Doing the will of God can wreck your life. Let us, let us embrace that as we read the text this morning. Think about what we've seen so far and what we're going to see this morning. We see a young couple that's engaged, and and the last thing that that they wanted or expected was to get pregnant. We see an older couple who've spent their uh, entire life in, in the shadow of the stigma of barrenness who wanted to get pregnant, but they couldn't, and now it's too late. They were too old. And some will say, but but wait a minute, they did have a child, and yes, they didn't see him live to be very old. They died while he was very young, and he ends up living in the desert, probably because Zachariah's social security ran out. I don't know exactly what happened. We see this really special angel named Gabriel, and there are these three prominent angels throughout. Uh, particularly the old, and some in the New Testament, we see Michael the archangel, who is a war angel. We see we see Lucifer, uh, who uh, is removed off the scene before we start reading about the 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 grand meta narrative of god's activity in humanity and lucifer was the worship angel and we see gabriel who's the word angel every time gabriel shows up he's got a word from god i've been i've been in the presence of god i've been sent from god to go and share it with you and 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 he goes to a young peasant girl named mary who doesn't understand but believes and then Gabriel goes to the Reverend Zachariah, a seasoned veteran of the temple, and he doubts, and lo and behold, for nine months, his speech and hearing are restricted. For Mary, we see a stigma that is attached to her that is never removed. And for Elizabeth, we see a stigma that is removed and life ending in mission accomplished. So we see these complexities. And in the midst of all of this, we see these repeated themes throughout the gospel of Luke and in the section that we're going to be looking at today. We see sin and redemption. Please do not let the center of your life veer far away from these two concepts, sin and redemption. Sin and redemption sin and redemption. We see it over and over and over again. We see darkness and light. There are two kinds of people on the face of the planet. People who are in darkness are people or people who are in light. And if the the sun of righteousness does not rise with his gleaming light and shine on you, you will be in darkness. There's hopelessness and hope. There's every reason to fear in the text we're looking at today. When an angel shows up, just shows up on the scene, you look and nothing's there, you look and something's there, and all of a sudden there's an angel, you better be scared. But they keep saying, fear not. Why? Because when God is doing something supernatural, God in His holiness and justice has every right to strike us dead. We don't fear that. We sin. And we think it's like drinking a glass of water, taking a gulp of a big gulp. No problem. I'll just do it anyway. God is a God of judgment and justice. And sin will be dealt with. And sin will be punished. And sinners will die. So when God is doing something supernatural and something like an angel shows up, it better scare you rather significantly. And you better be scared (laughs) until he says... Don't be afraid. Because if he doesn't say fear not, you probably should fear. When he says fear not, it means that there's good news. When he says fear not, it means that there's grace. But if he doesn't say fear not, it could mean that judgment is going to fall and that can and does happen. We see repeated in the Gospel of Luke over and over again, good news, 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 news. over and over again, good news of the kingdom. We see in the Gospel of Luke the Holy Spirit's presence and activity. We see it in the text that we're looking at today. The Holy Spirit's moving. The Holy Spirit's moving. The Holy Spirit's moving over and over and over again. We need to pay attention to the movement of the Holy Spirit. We we see in the text that we've looked at and are going to look at five tributes of praise. We see uh, Elizabeth filled with the Spirit and praising God when Mary walks into the room. And she's carrying... Our Lord Jesus in her womb. We see Mary singing this great song that we looked at last week. We see Zachariah breaking forth in praise when he's filled with the Holy Spirit. We see Simeon breaking forth in praise and Anna doing the same thing. And that's not even inclusive of this heavenly host of angels that break out like a great choir and sing glory to God in the highest. They show up beside the groggy shepherds. Singing a choir like no one has ever heard before. We're probably never here until we get to heaven. And then there's this unfitting and clearly predicted birth for the King of Kings and Lord of Lords. While the text takes us to Caesar Augustus, who was the grandson of Julius Caesar and these great kings thinks that think that they're pushing buttons and, and pulling strings and pulling levers and they're in control and telling people what to do. It is ultimately God the Father of the Son who is in the manger who is telling everybody to do everything exactly like He has planned it so that the prophecies that are predicted under the power and inspiration of the Holy Spirit are going to come true exactly like He said they would come true. But yet it does seem like an unfitting birth for the king of kings and Lord's, Lord of Lords. And this gives us some insight into the heart of God. God seems to often work and move in ways that are counterintuitive. If I were God, I would not do a lot of the things that God does. But God works in His way and it confounds us sometimes. And then, and then finally, before we look at the text, there are two unlikely fam- families that play a major role in God's eternal plan of redemption. Two unlikely families that play a major role in God's eternal plan of redemption. Here's what I want you to understand this morning. God, if he has saved you, intends that you and your family play a critical role in the plan of redemption for the people that live here in our city. I hope you'll get that today. We see, we see angels and we see important people and we see unimportant people. We see a, a young man who's maybe 15 and a young girl who's 13 and an old man who's probably 80 and his wife's probably 75 and God's working through these people and we see angels showing up. But believe it or not, the Holy Spirit has showed up and drawn you to himself and saved you so that you can be included in God's eternal plan of redemption. I don't know what you think your life purpose is this morning. I don't know what you're living for this morning. But you need to give serious consideration to your participation in God's glorious plan of redemption. He's calling on unlikely people to be involved in that. Let's look at the text as you think about the things that I've just shared. Beginning in verse number 57. Caleb left off last week in verse 56 and I'm thankful that he came in and, and, and so skillfully um, shared with us last week. Verse 57, now the time for Elizabeth to give birth. Now the time came for Elizabeth to give birth, and she bore a son. And her neighbors and relatives heard that the Lord had shown great mercy to her, and they rejoiced with her. If you go back, you know Elizabeth was kind of hiding out. Um, She probably thought, "Uh, I'm just going to hide out. I don't want people to see me walking around with my belly all swollen. They're going to think I've got you know, uh, something growing inside of me. They're not going to think I'm pregnant. They're going to wonder what's going on. It's going to create a lot of confusion. So Elizabeth is not out in public. And her neighbors and relatives heard that the Lord had shown great mercy to her, and they rejoiced with her. Folks, listen. Great mercy is shown in its greatest way when God uses us in His great plan of redemption. This was extremely, this was profoundly uncomfortable. I've got 11 grandkids, and I'm glad to see them drive up the driveway, and I'm glad to see them drive out the driveway. It is is exhausting. It is exhausting. I can't imagine a woman, 75 or 80 years old, having a baby and having to take care of it. And I'm sure she was excited, but I'm sure she had the energy of an 80-year-old woman. Or if she had the energy, be a 62-year-old 60, man. I mean, I don't know how, how she did that. But God showed her great mercy. Verse 59, And on the eighth day they came to circumcise the child. And they would have called him Zechariah after his father. And, and by the way, they, they were going to kind of take over where Zechariah couldn't speak and, and name the baby for him. But his mother answered, No, he shall be called John. And they said to her, None of your relatives is called by this name. Now, the, you're, you're breaking with custom. You're, you're breaking with tradition here. This is what we've always done. We've always done it this, this way, verse 62, and they made signs to his father inquiring what he wanted to be wanted them to be called. And he asked for a writing tablet and he wrote, he said, "Bring me my iPad." And he said, "His name is John." And they all wondered, what in the world is going on? This is confusing. They're scratching. Their head. And immediately his mouth was opened and his tongue loosed, and he spoke, blessing God. And fear came on all their neighbors, and all these things were talked about through all the hill country of Judea. And all who heard them laid them up in their hearts, saying, What then will this child be? For the hand of the Lord was on him. So something is happening. That's, that's profoundly unusual, that is capturing the attention of the people here, that it is indicating to them that God is up to something unique and powerful. Verse 67, And his father Zechariah was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied, saying, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people. And you, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High. He's speaking now. He's talk- been talking about Jesus up to verse 75. He's been talking about Israel up to verse 75, the people of God. Verse 76, he says, And you, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High, for you will go before the Lord to prepare His ways, to give knowledge of salvation to His people in the forgiveness of their sins because of the tender, here's mercy again, mercy of our God, whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high, talking about Jesus, to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death to guide our feet into the way of peace. And the child grew and became strong in spirit, and he was in the wilderness until the day of his public appearance to Israel. He lived a unique life. We go back now to some historical narrative. We go back now to uh, seeing where God is moving among his people and exercising his sovereignty to bring about his purposes and the folks that he's using and working through have no idea that there is even a God or that he's working through them. Verse 1 of chapter 2, in those days a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria. By the way, these are real events. These are real people. These are real places. This is not once upon a time. This is an historical narrative telling us real historical events that really happened. We're not making this up. You can go back and check it out. Verse 3. And all went to be registered, each to his own town. Read a commentary and come up with a million different views. We're not going to waste time trying to figure out if the shepherds were in the field on December the 24th. Um, Those are things that are not pertinent to the text. And if you've got all the energy to do that, then you may have too much time on your hands. We're looking at these unusual events that captured the attention of those that were there and how God is moving. What is God trying to say to us through these events 2,000 years later? Verse 8. And in the same region there were shepherds out in the field keeping watch over their flock by night. And the angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them. And they were filled with great fear. There goes that fear again. And the angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all people. I'm not coming with a message of judgment. I'm not coming to destroy you. That could have been their fate, but it was. And I'm bringing good news, for unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior. Who is Christ, the Lord, for this will be a sign for you. And you will find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of heavenly hosts praising God and saying, I don't know if they were singing or saying or whatever they do, but it really messes up our Christmas play if they just say it. Glory to God in the highest and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. When the angels went away from them into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, Let us go to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has made known to us. They're reacting to the things that God is making known to them. And they went with haste and found Mary and Joseph, the babe, lying in a manger. And when they saw it, they made known the saying that had been told them concerning this child. And all who heard it wondered. A lot of people are wondering, what is God up to? What is God up to? And all who heard it wondered at what the shepherds told them. But Mary treasured up all these things, pondering them in her heart, which Mary did throughout her life, even at the end of her life. She's pondering these things in her heart until she saw her resurrected son. And then it's all coming together. And the shepherds returned glorifying and praising God for all they had heard and seen as it, was, as it has been told to them. So what do we see in the text this morning? I'm taking from uh, verse number 67, um, 68, uh, this, this theme from all that we've just read. God has visited and redeemed His people so that they can have new life in Him. God has visited and redeemed His people so that they can have new life in Him. Look at verse 68. Blessed be the God of Israel, for He has visited and redeemed... His people, and he goes on to tell us then about the new life that we have um, in in Him. Um, what what are what are we what do we see in the midst of all of the possibilities that that could have been addressed among God's people, and all of the complexities and the confusion and the pain and the patterns and the problem? There were issues of of, of national and international significance that could have been addressed by this this angel or by this prophet or by zachariah or by these songs or by the filling of the spirit racism and crime could have been addressed certainly they were there in that day economics and politics could have been addressed weather and natural disasters and i'm not sure global global warming could have been addressed because i'm not sure global warming is a thing but it sounds good um, mandated vaccines i doubt they were being discussed they probably wish they had some vaccines they probably had some voter fraud and some, some issues related to free speech and the right to bear arms. Um, they had some issues with health care, and they were worried about the economy, and just like we're worried about the stock market and inflation. And, 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 guys, these things dominate our conversations. These things dominate our conversations. And there's a place for them. There's a place for them. I'm, I'm all for free speech. I'm all for the right to bear arms. <laughs> I'm deeply concerned about what's going on in our culture. I've got four kids, that, like I said, 11 grandkids, and I'm concerned about the world they're going to grow up in. And we've, we've absolutely and, and completely capitulated to the voices of our culture. We will not even stand up and speak the truth of the Word of God. We're scared to say uh, anything about the abortion issue. We're scared to say anything about the marriage issue. That marriage is God's things and God's thing, and God's word is clearly delineated. The, the the good The good news is this: that there is this 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 uh, rapid elimination of any uh, vestiges of history. You say, well, why is that a good thing? Well, what's happening in a, in a climate of, of, you know, we hear a lot of talk about critical race theory that's rooted in, in a, a, a Marxist perspective of life. And, and Marxism basically is this, is this stirring up the people that believe they're oppressed, these, these victims, so that they can overthrow the oppressors. And the oppressors are those that are in control of what's going on in society and the oppressors shape everything. In other words, a man is a man because there were some people in a society that said a man should be a man, and therefore a man is a man because of what society says, not because of what's really on the inside of me. Right? Not because of the way I'm made biologically, but it's what's going on in the culture. And so so what happens is you've got this these oppressed people, and Marx wants them, and, and in our culture that we live in, wants them to rise up and overthrow the ruling class. The the cool thing about all that is this. Once you you remove every vestige of history, and by the way, there's a generation that's rising up, and maybe you're one of them that's never read a, a, a book on paper. You might listen to it on Audible. And all that information goes away, and you don't know where any books are because you don't have any, and you don't remember any history because we've removed all of the statues, whether you agree with them or not. And what's going to happen is the oppressed class is going to rise up and throw over the ruling class, which this is not a racist statement. Uh, the ruling class is considered to be a bunch of, of, of straight white guys who, who work and pay taxes. Okay, that's just, that's just the facts. That's just the facts. The good news is that once the, the, the class that's being oppressed rises up and overthrows the class that's oppressing, then those who are the oppressors are going to be the oppressed, and then we're going to rise up and overthrow the oppressors again. And they, they won't even know what happened in the past because they've eliminated history. <laughs> and we could have conversations about all that this morning. And those are very important issues. But there's something more important. And so forgive me if every Sunday we talk about Jesus here. Forgive me if we don't run to the fact that God has visited us in all of that dialogue, in all of the Robert E. Lee statue being removed, in everything that's going on, in all of the debates on Facebook somebody call a timeout, in the center of it all, at one of the most critical times in human history, when God wants to reveal himself and what he's doing, he calls a timeout. The Spirit fills this old guy named Zachariah who just had a son that he don't know what in the world to do with, and he's probably sleep-deprived because he's been spending 80 years taking his naps and, and sleeping 12 hours at night and doing exactly what he wants to do. And the Spirit shows up and said, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for He has visited and redeemed His people. And here's what I want you to see this morning. I want you to see, first of all, God's sovereign hand over human history. We are in the middle of an historical moment, and God is sovereign over it. He is sovereign over it. And He is still visiting and he is still redeeming. Don't miss that. He is still visiting, and he is still redeeming. We see two things from, from the sovereign hand of God over human history. We see the birth of John the Baptist. And let me just, just hasten through it. The, the text is, is in narrative form. It's, it's there. there there's, there's not a lot of uh, deep truth to dig out of it. You can read it, and you can read it, and you can read it. But let me just point out some things. First of all, there is this continual expectation of the Jewish people with the birth of every child. The Jewish people are expecting a deliverer. And would to God that the church would be hopeful in the soon return of Jesus Christ. But we're more, we're, we're more worried about what we can acquire. We're more worried about trying to, to make systems work in our favor. We're, we're more worried about our comfort than we are about the return of Jesus Christ. In fact, the church has talked itself out of talking about the return of Jesus Christ because there's so many different eschatological perspectives on the return of Jesus Christ. But I, I want to tell you something. If you'll read your Bible, you can't help but get a sense that Jesus is coming soon. He's coming soon. And so these people were looking constantly with the birth of every child. Is this the deliverer? Is this the Messiah? And all of a sudden now, they see this unusual conception and birth. There's a senior adult who's been barren all her life, beyond physical ability, and now she is pregnant. And then there is this, un- this unusual name. He's, he's breaking, like we said, with, with custom. He's he's kicking against what everybody expects him to do, even in his religious community, and he names him John, which means Jehovah is gracious. It means that many would be turned from sin to Jehovah and find God's grace through the ministry of this man, John. There is an unusual silence that catches people's attention. Why could Zechariah be talking when he walked into the temple and now when he comes out of the temple he can't speak and he can't hear? This unusual, something unusual, something supernatural. There is this unusual curiosity. These events and this child captured the curiosity and imagination of the people. We see that in verse 65 of chapter 1. And then we see that this is an unusual child. They're saying, well, what kind of plans must God have for this baby? God is about to reveal something to us. But we can even move beyond that and we can go to Malachi and we can see in Malachi chapter 3 and in Malachi chapter 4, that, there, that this birth of this child, John, is a clear fulfillment of prophecy. Malachi predicted 400 years earlier that a forerunner was going to come, that Elijah was going to come, and that he was going to prepare the way of the Messiah, of the Redeemer. And so this is, this is God's sovereign hand over human history. One writer said, God is at work doing something very special, and the crowd senses it. So we see God's sovereign hand over human history in the birth of John. We see God's sovereign hand over human history in the birth of Jesus. Chapter 2, verses 1 to 7. We see the decree of sovereign God that was facilitated by a decree of Caesar. It was God who determined that he was going to arrange circumstances so that he could get Joseph and Mary to Bethlehem to fulfill a prophecy given hundreds of years before from the prophet Micah. Not Malachi, but Micah. And and so, so Caesar thought that he was telling the world what to do, while in fact it was God telling Caesar to tell the world what to do. God is sovereign over these things. God is sovereign over these people that are over us. God is working to make Himself great, to make His name known, to reveal Himself to us. And they're going to Bethlehem, a 90-mile ride with a pregnant woman who's about to bear a child. I guess that's where people get the idea of take your wife out down a bumpy road in the car when she's pregnant and she doesn't seem to be going into labor and maybe if you go down the bumpy road that that 90 miles down a bumpy road riding a riding a, a donkey and all of a sudden she's ready to deliver when she gets to Bethlehem and then we see these humble circumstances. The, the inn was probably uh, a guest house, a room, and beneath is where they kept animals, and it was probably against a rock or maybe in a cave, and the manger was probably just a hewn-out area where animals would come and eat. And this is not fitting for the Son of God. This is not fitting for the King of kings and Lord of lords, but this is what God does to introduce himself to humanity. And then we see in the birth of Jesus the miraculous precision of biblical prophecy and the unusual circumstances that God uses to get our attention and show us His heart, which again is counterintuitive. God does things in the most simple and humble and backwards way, just like the first shall be last and the last shall be first, and God's strength is shown in our weakness. And so God wants to manifest Himself not in a way that we would think would be fitting for His Son, to be born in, but in a way that would completely shock us. It's counterintuitive. So we see God's sovereign hand over human history. And I think we ought to be able to run to that and kind of breathe a sigh of relief and say, I don't know what's happening. It may be bad, and it may end up bad for me, and it may end up bad for you, and it may end up bad for America, and I don't want it to. I don't want it to. I don't have a problem loving my nation. You can call me a nationalist all you want to. They haven't called people nationalists since the beginning of this nation. And I'm not going to let somebody who doesn't even know what they're talking about when they call people nationalists because they love their nation. And just just a silence of voices. God has had his hand in the founding of this nation. God has blessed America. I'm not ashamed of that. I'm thankful for that. And God is working in this text that we're going to look at, and there is a call, there is this belief that when Messiah comes, he is going to bring relief not only to people spiritually, but, but to them nationally. And that's what Messiah will do. But the second thing we see is not only God's sovereign hand over human history, but we see God's sovereign plan of redemptive history. And there are so many things in verses 67 to, to 80 that we need to, to, to point out that we probably won't have time to get to, to all of them or get through all of them. But, but I want to uh, take, take a, a stab at it. The first thing we see in God's sovereign plan of redemptive history, and by the way, these are two sentences um, that that we that we see in in the text here two long sentences so it's, it's naturally broken up into two parts this this uh, this song or uh, this Benedictus by uh, Zacharias beginning in verse number sixty eight and going down to verse seventy five that ends one sentence and, and then uh, the, the next sentence when he's talking about his son uh, John the Baptist is is one long sentence going through verse number seventy nine so it naturally breaks up into two parts. And so the first part is this, God visits and redeems. God visits and redeems. The word visit there is, is a very familiar term to us. It's, a, it's um, episkopos, episkopos. is where we get our word "episcopal" from. It's where the word uh, bishop comes from. It means to oversee. And skopos or scopas means to, to look through and see, to look through a scope. To look through a telescope, to look through a microscope, to look through something that gives you insight into something. And, and he's saying that, that, that God is, is looking closely and deeply and carefully and fully. It is God who is visiting. He's seeing. He wants to be close to and he wants to be with us. He's saying that God is coming from heaven to earth to visit his people because his desire is to be with them. People visit you because they want to be with you. And he's saying, here is, here is God, blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he wants to visit us. And he wants not only to visit us, but he wants to, in an intensified way, episcopas. He wants to, in an intensified way, be close. To his people. He wants to be with us. He wants to be near us. And he not only wants to be near us, but he wants to redeem us. He wants to set us free from captivity. The history of Israel is a history of bondage. It's a history of being captured by the Egyptians and the Assyrians and the Babylonians and the Romans. That's all they know, they've known in their history and and essentially uh, what he's saying is that this this god is coming and visiting and he is going to redeem he's going to set sinners free from slavery to sin there are other captors there are national captors but he's saying that the greatest captor is sin the ultimate captor is sin and the worst thing ever is our enslavement to sin without any way of getting out of it i wish we would understand that i wish we would see that the gospel should should rise up among us who believe in the midst of all of these things that are going on around us because there is there is something worse than america falling and it's you dying in your sin and i'm not for it falling but that may be the plan of god And you can do all that you want to to try to prevent it. And if it's the plan of God, you won't prevent it. And and by the way, I'm not going to say if God is a just God. I'm going to say since God is a just God. Any judgment that comes to our nation will be completely just. We've been killing unborn children for a long time, and it's legal. And we've said in so many ways by the laws that are written on our books, God, would you take a hike? Would you get lost? The good news is, there is a visitation, and it comes in the form of His Son, and His Son redeems. His Son has been has been loosed to set sinners free from sin, and He has come to live among us, to dwell among us, to set sinners free, to release a redeemer who frees. God's visitation and redemption have been promised by the prophets. That's what he's telling us in the text. He goes back to say this this promise of, of visitation of a redeemer has been told over and over and over again by these prophets. God's God's people, godly people, hundreds of years prior, in fact, going all the way back to Genesis 3, Told about this, these very historical events that are unfolding before our eyes. That's the miracle of the Bible. You say, man, I don't believe that Bible. If you don't believe the Bible, you've got some susplaining to do. You guys, you 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 just you got some susplaining to do because because there are some things that have been clearly predicted hundreds of years ago that unfolded in in uh, unbelievable precision, and that's what he's telling us. The the God of Israel is visiting and redeeming and we know that this is the God of Israel visiting and redeeming and we know we see this in these things that are happening with John the Baptist and we know we see this in the way that Christ has come on the scene because of what these prophets have said over and over and over again. God's visitation and redemption has been promised. Secondly, when God when God visits and redeems it will be powerful look at verse 69 and has raised up a horn of salvation for us this is this is this is power what is what is the horn of salvation it's the horn of a powerful animal it's the horn of an oxen and it's a picture of an oxen lowering his his head and all of his power with all of his muscles flexed and there are barriers in front of that oxen and he is just moving them all out of the way this great redeemer jesus christ that is coming to visit us is a powerful redeemer and nothing will stop him in his purpose in his plan in his work in his redemption nothing can thwart the plans of god He's powerful. When God visits and redeems, there will be mercy, verse 72. When God visits and redeems, it will be comprehensive. It will be a total deliverance of God's people. That's what he's saying. He's he's saying it's not just going to be a spiritual deliverance. He says we're going to be saved from our enemies, from the hand of all who hate us. He swore this oath to his father Abraham that we, being delivered from the hand of our enemies, so there is this comprehensive, this this horn, this 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 uh, raised up horn of salvation, is so powerful that he's going to move the enemies of God out of the way, and that all, that ought not to bother us. I, I was I was reading. Um, um dale ralph davison and he said do you imagine that at this very moment christians in myanmar and north korea and pakistan and china and vietnam and laos and iran and syria and egypt and nigeria um, and somalia long for this very salvation the the thing that that makes me thankful for our nation is is the fact that we have freedom of worship Is the fact that just like under Caesar Augustus, you know what happened under Caesar Augustus? Caesar Augustus was kind of a confusing guy, but really as he got uh, further along in his reign, he was a a halfway decent guy and he allowed for the the way that he ruled, allowed for the expanse, the, the peace of Rome, allowed for the expansion of the early New Testament church. You understand that? You understand that what's happened in America, and we've lost sight of it, and the church has lost sight of it. We've taken the church and cons- turned it into a consumer event. We've taken the gospel and turned it into something that's all about me and me being happy, and that's not what it's about. There was a time in America when the church was about reaching the world the gospel, getting the word out to everybody, helping everybody that we could. And so the church was very unique at a particular time in history. And in general, it's not that way today. But understand that the the great freedoms that we have have, have enjoyed and the great freedoms that will probably be taken away from us, we enjoyed them for the sake of the expansion of the gospel. And so it's it's not a bad thing to say, yes, Lord, redeem us spiritually. But yes, redeem us from our enemies so that the gospel can go forth. It's also a redemption that cannot be denied. If you read through this text, you see everything that's spoken in this text is in the past tense. Is spoken as though it's already happened. Blessed be the God of Israel, for He has visited and redeemed His people, and has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of David. And He spoke by the mouth of His holy prophets. He's doing all of these things in the past that indicate that this will not be stopped. You can get everybody together. You can you can get Nietzsche and Freud and 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 Darwin and. And every group you can, you just name it. Any organization. That, that, by the way, if you will just look at them, if you'll just study uh, the, the organizations who have as their goal the destruction of the family and ultimately the destruction of the church and the silencing of Christianity, which has been going on for for at least three hundred years, even in America. The, the stop the church. Shut the church up. Shut the church down. You're not going to stop the true church. You're not going to stop the mission of God. Through his people. And then he tells us in the text that God sends a forerunner so that his people can be sure, beginning in verse number 76. And you, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High and you will go before the Lord to prepare his way. And that is exactly what John did to give knowledge of salvation to his people and the forgiveness of sins. And so we see God sending a a, a forerunner. Um, so that his people can be sure. And then thirdly and finally this morning, we see in the text God unveiling from his hand and plan and un- God unveiling his hand and plan to an unlikely audience. And we see that in verses 8 to 20. He comes to shepherds and these shepherds um, are economic uh, outcasts. They're, they're probably uh, poor. They're a political outcasts. A shepherd Uh, was of such a a character that he couldn't even testify in court. They were religious outcasts. They couldn't fulfill the law because of the nature of their work. Um, The the question probably that could be answered when we look at the text is this, how low can you go? How low can you go? And I think the, the angels went just about as low as they could go, and God went just about as low as he could go to find the most unlikely people to share the good news with. And that, that's good news to me. He went to the shepherds. And I love the way the text gives this graphic description. And an angel of the Lord, verse 9, uh, appeared to them. Uh, literally, the, an angel of the Lord was standing beside them. Just shoo, just standing beside them. When we were in Africa, the young people would... Um, would You'd be stand. You think you're standing out in the field. You could see, you know, a mile in every direction. And you turn your head, and all of a sudden, you turn back around, and psh, there was a caramajong. And I'm just like, this is scary. I didn't hear the noise, but um, but I'm sure if I had been listening, I would have. And that's what happened. They're 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 just out in the field, you know. Like I don't know I don't know what they're doing. I don't know if they're smoking cigars or or whatever they're doing. They're probably sleepy, and and hanging around, uh, trying to take care of their sheep that they've probably gotten inside of some corral so that wild animals can't get to them, and and they're probably resting. And all of a sudden, shoo, an angel of the Lord shows up, and and the text says that that um, that they they feared. With great fear. They were consumed with fear. This came out of nowhere in the dark of night. And I don't know if you've ever been in a place and experienced the dark of night like they were experiencing the dark of night, but it is really, 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 really dark. I don't know if you can find the dark of night in America with planes flying over and cities in the distance, street lights, flashlights. But if you get out in a place that's, that's third world country and it's extremely remote and you can see nothing and you can hear voices for miles, you know that you're in the dark of night. And they were in the dark of night. And this exhortation comes from the angel. Don't be frightened. Don't be frightened. Don't be afraid. This is not negative. This is good. God is not coming to judge. God is coming in grace and redemption. Stop being frightened that would not stop me from being frightened I'm bringing you good news I'm bringing you the gospel he uses the term good news in chapter 1 verse 19 he uses it here in chapter 2 and verse 10 in chapter 4 verse 18 in chapter 4 verse 43 in chapter 7 and verse 22 in chapter 8 verse one in chapter 9 and verse 6 in chapter 16 and verse 16 and in chapter 20 and verse one the the good news is a is a, is a big part of the gospel of Luke. It's a big part of the people of God. It's the story of salvation through Jesus Christ. It is the evangel. Good news of great joy. There is no greater joy than to know that sin is obliterated. To know that no charge can be brought against you. To know that there are many things in all of our lives that we deeply regret. Anybody? There there are serious, dark, sinful things in all of our lives that we all deeply regret. But I bring you good news of great joy. Jesus Christ, the Son of God, came and lived a life of perfect righteousness and fulfilled the law. And he said, I give you my righteousness, Mark. And Jesus Christ came in perfect righteousness and died for my sin in my place. He's the only one that could do it. And he said, it is finished. And my sin debt was paid in full. He said, I give you my righteousness. I take your sin. I pay for it in full. And I rise victorious over your sin. This is good news of great joy. The, 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 the Probably the scariest thing in the world is knowing that you're guilty and you're about to be caught. what happens when you're driving down i-75 and you see somebody sitting in the woods and you know you're going 80 and the speed limit 70 and all of a sudden you reach for the brake and all of a sudden you see them pull out and you're scared and you're wondering what kind of lie am i going to tell them and then thankfully they pass right by you because they were going after that guy driving 90 good news of great joy All of your sin has been forgiven. You have been redeemed by the finished work of Jesus Christ. He has visited us. There cannot be any greater joy, and it is good news for all people. For all people. There is born to you this day in the city of David born this day because it was a promise that was made long, a long time ago, but now it's come to pass. A Savior. And there is no article that says a Savior. There's not a Savior. He is Savior. He's the only Savior. A Savior who is Christ, who is the Messiah, who is Christ the Lord, who comes in all powerful, who is all power, This who is this horn. And the text tells us, and I love these guys, without delay, they hurried off to see the Messiah. And when they saw the Messiah, they hurried off to tell tell everybody exactly what they had seen and the world was in the beginning processes of being turned upside down because of their witness let me try to make some application from a lot of verses this morning first of all god knows everything about you he knows everything about you he knows everything about Some of you might be able to count the hair on your head. Most of you can't. He knows how many there are. He knows everything about you. He loves you so much that he keeps up with the minute details of your life. My, my birthday's in November, and my mom forgot last year, and she'll probably forget this year, but he knows the day that I was born. And he knows the day that I will die, and he knows how many days I will live. And my life is in His hands. He cares so much about us. He knows everything about us. And I would say this this morning. In light of that, don't trivialize or isolate your life from God's hand or plan. Don't trivialize or isolate your life from God's hand or plan. He is working in sovereignly in human history. By his powerful hand, humble yourself, 1 Peter 5, 6, beneath the mighty hand of God and in due season he will exalt you. His hand is at work and his desire is to use you in his plan of redemption. So, So don't trivialize or isolate your life from God's hand and plan. Trust God to make sense of your brokenness. God is always up to something, even on our worst day. Even on our worst day. God may be doing something in and through you that you may not understand and that may not be meaningful while you are alive, but may have meaning a century from now. This is exactly what we see in the text of Scripture. So, so I, would, I would challenge you today, Surrender your life to God. Surrender your story to God. Surrender your history to God. Surrender your future to God. Don't trivialize or isolate your life from God's hand or plan. God has come to visit because He wants to be with us. And He's come to redeem. He wants to hang out with us. He loves us. He wants us to be a part of what He's doing. The second thing we see is this just as sin is not a figment of our imagination. Folks, is anybody in doubt that the world's messed up? Does anybody doubt that? Does anybody think everything's okay? It's not. It's not. We've got some coffee upstairs for you if you think it is. It's not. It's messed up. Sin is running rampant in every which way that we can even begin to imagine or try to keep up with. But just as sin is not not a figment of our imagination and brokenness is not a figment of our imagination, redemption is not a myth or, or a hoax. We are all sinners. We will all die for our sin. And Jesus Christ, through His visitation and redemption, are the only means to escape from our sin. Not to trust Christ and trust Him completely is humanity's greatest tragedy. And I would plead with you this morning if you don't know Christ, if you have not trusted Him, if you're trusting something besides Him, if you're trusting yourself, if you're trusting works, if you're trusting religion, if you're trusting something that somebody's told you that's not in Scripture, if you're trusting anything other than Christ and Him visiting us in, in the person of His Son and His Son living and dying and resurrecting, if you're trusting anything but the finished work of Jesus Christ, I would, I would beg you this morning to trust him. He is visiting and he is redeeming. Thirdly, God longs to be with us. God longs to be with us. And at the end of the day, our restlessness can only be satisfied in him. God longs to be with us. And at the end of the day, our restlessness can only be satisfied in him. He announces, he visits, he redeems, he goes to prepare a place. He comes to get us and take us home with us. And he has revealed himself to us so that we can take good news to those around us. To strange, unlikely, outcast, ragtag, weird people. The fact that we say that we believe the gospel puts the weight upon us to share what we've heard, to share what we've seen. And to take it to everybody around us and communicate it in, in such compelling ways. to communi- Listen, to communicate it in such compelling ways that people will either believe us or think we're crazy. That's what happened to the shepherds. Then finally, we have and need the presence and power of the Holy Spirit. You can't read through the, the, the gospel of, of Luke and not see the Spirit operative over and over and over and over again. When's the last time you thought about the presence of the Spirit in your life? Did you know that if you're a believer, that God's presence is dwelling, is living, has taken up residence in you? We are His temple. We are His dwelling place. He has chosen to reside in these jars of clay. That's us. That's you. That's me. In my DNA this week, um, we had that conversation about the presence of the Spirit. And, and folks, that is something that is so absolutely neglected. We, we've, we're, we're, we're scared. We're scared. We're ignorant, and we've squelched the presence of the Spirit in our lives and in our church. I came to an awareness after all these years that the Spirit lives in me, and I've had some situations that I've gone into this week, and I, I just like I just like to you know show up and be the man, right? I just like to show up. I got a, I'm the pastor. That's what pastors are supposed to do, right? We're supposed to like somehow have the presence of God with us and have all the answers and know all the bible and be able to say just the right words and all the moves and and everything else and and all of that is just is just failure. The only thing that I can take into any situation that I go into is this shell of a man and the spirit that lives in me. Y'all y'all with me? That's all we got. That's all we got. The thing that hit me this week though was this the spirit lives in my wife too. And I've lived a lifetime just trying to get her to cooperate. And me trying to be super preacher. You know, just don't say anything. Anybody ever heard my wife say anything bad? That's because I've trained her not to. That's right. Anybody ever anybody ever known my wife to have an opinion about anything? No, she ain't got no opinions. I've trained her not to have any opinions, right? Because I got this strategy, and this strategy is figure out how to make ministry work, right? And it's exhausting. And so this week I came to this realization that it's just it's just this shell of me and the spirit within, but the spirit also lives within her, and I need to quit trying to get her to cooperate with me and my strategy and make sure she makes me look good, which that's quite an undertaking, okay? And I need to be curious about what the Spirit is doing in her heart and life. Now, I didn't tell her this, and so I'm out now, okay? My my goose is cooked, it's over. But believe it or not, the Spirit is so powerful and living and dwelling and so necessary and so neglected that all of us need to look around this room this morning And see and understand that the Spirit lives in other people in this room. And we need to be curious about what the Spirit might be doing and what God might be doing in the lives of those around us as He moves His sovereign hand over us as His people in this city to accomplish His purposes through us. And if He's going to do it, He's going to do it by the power of His Spirit that lives and dwells in us. And so I would leave you with these two thoughts. Number one, if you don't know Christ... He's visited in His Son and made Himself known to us. And He redeems. You don't have to live in your sin. You don't have to live in your pride. You don't have to live with a facade, with a mask, with a pose, with being somebody that you're not. You can be set free today. You don't have to be in bondage. But you believe the gospel. And if you have believed the gospel, the Spirit has come in and taken up residence in your life. And He's working in this body. And He wants to do things that are beyond my ability and your ability, our ability to do and our ability to comprehend. And I would ask you this morning to recognize the spirit that lives within and recognize the spirit that lives among us and let us begin to ask ourselves, God, what are you doing? That you might be glorified. That we might see you work among us and in this city for your glory to visit, to visit and to redeem.